for your audience, you know, the foodies in the world, what happens basically with a grain finished diet, if you've ever eaten antelope or deer and you get that very pungent, you know, sharp flavor, that's beta carotene. That's beta carotene that comes from grass that, that's stored in fat. When you finish with a concentrated ration, which is a grain finished diet, uh, it actually flushes the fat out. And that's where you get, you know, the steak you got had that bright white fat on it that tastes kind of blurry. The biggest flavor profile you have in meat is the fat. So what we're doing is changing the flavor profile of the fat to that buttery, more nutty flavor rather than that pungent, you know, just chewed on a piece of tumbleweed. Welcome back to Winning at Work. It's season three, the podcast for the food and beverage and CPG world. I'm Jennifer Lee, Tony's new marketing sidekick and creative guru. I'll attempt to keep him on track as we discover the ideas and strategies behind all these different, better, and special brands. Oh, good luck keeping me on track, but I am really stoked to have you on the team, Jennifer. Your background in marketing and SEO and socials, we are going to have so much fun this year. We're going to be discovering the new brands here in 2023. It's all about functional, good for you, lifestyle brands. Those are trending. Those are the products that are gaining market share and really pulling away from those old legacy brands. We're going to have each and every one of those brands down on the podcast to talk to us, to share their ideas, their inspiration. So you, the entrepreneur, so you, the food and beverage and CPG professional can take these new ideas in and incorporate them into your business and into your life. Oh my gosh, Tony, I'm seriously so excited. I feel like I learn so much just from listening to older episodes. Well, that's why we're here. And if this is your first time here, I would recommend, look, go back, take the five episode challenge, pick a brand, pick a CEO, an entrepreneur, dive in, listen to what it is that they're teaching us. If you love the content, subscribe. We hope you're along with us for the journey each and every week. Hey, it's Jennifer. We get it. Everyone hates hiring. Inspired by his guests, Tony created a novel talent acquisition program that attracts the hidden candidate market, the 70% of people that are not actively applying to jobs. Click on the attract link in the show notes to watch a demo. Welcome to Winning at Work, everybody. I'm Tony, and today I've got Jeff Smith, the co-founder, co-owner of Colorado Craft Beef. Hey, How you Tony. doing, Jeff? Doing good, man. Thanks for having me on. Did you make it through the winter? Just barely. Uh, it was about January. I told my wife that I was offended at how good I'd gotten at moving snow with heavy machinery. So, I just can't imagine trying to run a uh, an agricultural business. You know, so dependent upon weather and everything, and you're just constantly dealing with curveball after curveball. I don't know how you guys do it, honestly. It was about 10 days before Christmas, and I was actually uh, shoveling snow out of feed bunks at our feed yard, and the air temperature was 20 below, and it was blowing 30 miles an hour. Uh, those were some <laughs> oh, of the days that I remembered I went to college, but in agriculture, it doesn't matter how smart you are, because sometimes you just have to run a shovel. Yeah, and then again, you're trying to protect the the, the welfare, too, you know, of your, of your most prized possessions. Well... Before we get into Colorado craft beef and, and kind of our business topic of how you're going to grow and expand and how you're kind of dealing with, you know, the market forces and pressure around that, I just want to learn more about your farm. 
Sure. So uh, I I married out of my out of my coverage originally. So my wife is actually the fifth generation rancher. Uh, our little girls are generation six, and the ranch where I'm sitting now was founded by my wife's great great grandfather in 1913, uh, about a quarter mile from here. And you know, it's always been a cattle ranch. Uh, there was some farming attempted early on. Nobody's tried to farm any of the ground since the 60s, just due to the soil type. It's uh, not the type of soil that really lends itself to a lot of cultivation. So it's very sandy. It's just like walking around on the beach when you break the root zone. Uh, so the, you know, bread That's and butter. Strange. Of the Colorado, I never would have thought, I just never would have oh, thought yeah. of that. Yeah, we're, in, we're out on the Eastern Plains. So we're about 90 miles Northeast of Denver. Um, so the geological formation we're in is the same Western Nebraska sand hills because we're kind of up in that corner of Kansas, Nebraska, Colorado. Uh, so if the sun is just right and there's not a lot of haze, we can see the mountains. They're about 110 miles away. Uh, but it's pretty great when people are like, Oh, Colorado, I love the mountains. I'm like, no, no, the, the other side. <laughs> <laughs> For the foodies, I think people who are just really interested in like how food is made and what the inputs are. Tell us more about that side of your business. Sure. So, you know, my wife and I are foodies as well. Uh, one of our favorite things is things to do whenever we're traveling, whether it's, you know, overseas or or in our own country. We try to find the local cuisine, where it comes from. We have an interesting relationship to it because we understand a lot of the different value chains that allow for food to be in certain regions. Um, so that's a weird, you know, dichotomy that we have of knowing how it got there and what makes it good. Uh, but, you know, kind of the elevator pitch for us with a direct to consumer slash high end beef company is we we are not a cow calf operation. So we do not have our own mother herd. We source calves from other ranches where we dictate health protocols we take them when they're weaned, when they're about six months old, and we take them from that process all the way to, you know, similar to your experience, a box shows up on your front door from FedEx. In that process, there's any number of different parts of the value chain. It's uh, cattle on grass in the pasture. Everything we do is horseback, uh, very old school, traditional type stuff through our feed yard that is uh as top of the line as we can get on equipment as you can at our scale uh, through a processing plant that's actually owned by a friend of mine to our on-site beef fulfillment location that's about 80 yards from our house. Uh, my wife actually holds a master's degree in cattle nutrition. So when you start thinking about the inputs and how things are managed from a cattle health standpoint, that is our number one priority is the health and well-being of the cattle. And then, you know, with the processing facility we utilize, we age everything for 21 days as a dry age, half carcass. So the carcass is split in the middle. So comparatively, we can do things that are very different than the commercial beef chain can just from a size, scope and scale. So when I say we dry age a half a beef for 21 days, that that steer hangs in the freezer for three weeks. And that's because of the facility we use, because in the commercial space, you know, some of the big commercial plants, they're harvesting five or 6,000 animals a day. So you can't, you can't hold an, you can't hold that level of production for three weeks because you'd need the world's largest Amazon warehouse full of the best coolers. And it's just a real estate problem. 
So since we are at a smaller scale, we do have an ability to do things that are different than the commercial market and then provide a different level of connection to where your food comes from. So tell me, what does the dry aging process do for the beef? Mm -hmm. So there's an enzymatic reaction in the beef where you're breaking down connective tissues. A lot of the water is actually draining out of the beef. So you don't get that watered down taste like you do get in some of the commercial beef chain where you you bite into a steak and it has steak texture, but it doesn't taste beefy for lack of a better adjective. You don't get that that earthy, nutty flavor that comes from aged beef. Um, and in that aging process, aside from water reduction, um, that the enzymes are breaking down connective tissue, they're working throughout the animal to kind of balance things and you're getting with that water coming out of the carcass, you're actually getting a little bit more void. So as you cook that beef, you get a lot more tender, uh, a lot more flavorful piece of meat. And then from an economic standpoint, you as the consumer are buying significantly less weight in water with aged product. So when the price may look a little higher, you're actually not paying for water. Got it. You may be getting more product, more yeah. Where's the beef? Sure. Well, and if you think of like a, a brisket, for instance, a brisket flat from us is around eight to 10 pounds. And if you buy a commercial packer brisket and you smoke it, by the time you trim fat and you get a lot of excess water loss when you cook, you're actually going to have about 50% yield on your starting weight. If you take our brisket and you cook it in the same manner, it's about 75% yield. So you're, you know, significant proportions different when you start thinking about it in a food service mindset or a, you know, raw pound per per person at, you know, an event, even if you're just doing a barbecue, you know, do I have enough meat? Um, some of those, some of that math really comes into play a lot, especially with some of our food service customers. Yeah. And I do want to get into your business model more because I know you, you do some really creative things with your chefs. So just from a, a finishing point of view, how long does it, or how many months does it take to finish? A cow? On average, you're going to be four to six months. And that includes a ramp up time because as part of the grain finishing process, you actually have to retrain the, the microbiome in the steer to start to convert the grain. So there's a ramp up process to make sure that they have proper gut health and you're not stressing the animal. Um, so, but all told, you know, four to six months is about average. And I've heard you do like it's good to finish with grain. What explain that? Why is that the the premium or best way to to go about it? There's a lot of different conversations to have. You could have the climate conversation where, you know, grain finished actually produces 67% less carbon than grass finishing on the same pound of meat. Um, but for your audience, you know, the foodies in the world, what happens basically with a grain finished diet. If you've ever eaten antelope or deer and you get that very pungent, you know, sharp flavor, that's beta carotene. That's beta carotene that comes from grass that, that's stored in fat. When you finish with a concentrated ration, which is a grain finished diet, uh, it actually flushes the fat out. And that's where you get, you know, the steak you got had that bright white fat on it that tastes kind yes. of blurry. The biggest flavor profile you have in meat is the fat. Correct. So what we're doing is changing the flavor profile of the fat to that buttery, more nutty flavor rather than that pungent, you know, just chewed on a piece of tumbleweed type dirt yeah. flavor you get with the wilder, more uh, for sure. 
And then the other thing that happens that's really beneficial back to the aging conversation, uh, if you don't have a proper fat cap on the animal when you age them, you can't age them because you can't trim the fat away. It'll actually, the the aging process will start to deteriorate the meat in more of a rancid profile rather than an aged profile. So that's why when you look at some of the guys doing custom dry aging like Lafreda or some of those guys, they're wrapping in cheesecloth or they're covering in butter. It's actually to insulate the meat so that you get a better flavor and a longer age without deteriorating the meat itself. Well, I'm curious, for, just in general, one head of beef is going to produce how much meat for you? Around I know it varies on cuts. Yeah, sure. It's, it's around 450 pounds per animal of finished product. And that's mainly deboned, um, not a lot of extra stuff. That's going to vary by carcass size. That's going to vary by breed. That's going to vary by region um, because cattle have metabolic responses to cold versus heat, et cetera. Uh, but in general, you know, four to 450 pounds of finished meat per animal is about right. It's a lot of um, sirloin. It's a lot of... Uh... It's really not. Uh, about half of that value is going to be burger. Um, you're only going to get about 25 pounds to 30 pounds of ribeye per animal. Uh, you're only going to get about four pounds of flat iron per animal. It's it's very interesting to watch that cutout calculation when somebody says, I want to serve flat iron at my restaurant and I need 100 pounds a week. Well, that's all the flat iron off 25 animals every week. So how much education do you have to go into with your chefs? It depends. Uh, some of them are very, very educated. They realize the type of cuts that work really well in food service. Um, then you get some of the more artisanal chefs that are like, I don't care what it is. This is the meal I'm doing. And sometimes they maybe have missed some preparation steps. So we don't have quite the time to execute on their demands. Um, probably the best chef uh, relationships we have is people will get with us three, four months out and say, this is the event I'm doing. What can we put together? And then we actually work backwards with them. Luckily being foodies and, you know, doing a lot of our own food preparation, you know, it's what is your demographic? Who are you cooking for? Where is it? What's the, you know, sheer logistics of getting the product there? You know, are you cooking on site? Uh, do you, you want to do a brisket dinner, but you're at, you know, the four seasons in Maui, they don't have smokers. So you're going to smoke and transport. Um, so when we can get more of that cooperative, collaborative mindset, we can really help chefs do some cool, cool stuff. Um, when it's more of a, no, this is how I do it because this is how my business makes money. Uh, we're a little less flexible because we have to be less flexible because they don't want flexibility. And sometimes that doesn't work. So it's, it's very much a culture of, do they want to be creative in a way that we can be creative that makes that weird paradigm alignment? Well, you've mentioned food service and DTC. So kind of talk through us your business model. Our business model is about 90% direct to consumer. Uh, so we ship every Monday from the ranch. We ship nationwide. We do a lot of business in Hawaii, believe it or not. Um, and based on the FedEx model from where we live in Colorado, we actually get to Hawaii cheaper than we can get to Virginia. So it's very odd learning that side of the business. But when we start thinking about chefs or food trucks, we do have some great partners uh, up along the front range where 
you know, we're burning hundreds of pounds a week of burger just to make room for other cuts. Uh, and then we do a lot of destination chefs that, hey, you know, we're doing a wedding in New Orleans in February. It's 25 people. What can you send us? Uh, it's it's very uh, customer service oriented, if I could say that, where it's either customer service for direct to consumer or customer service for some of our very good food service or chef level partners that understand how we have to operate to help them. Well, so having received one of your boxes in looking at your website, the consumer for DTC, they can just kind of choose how much they want, uh, you know, kind of a variety, or they can pick certain cuts and that's fine. That, that kind of handles that. Let's talk more about the, that 10%, that, that chef, that food service play. How do you go about uh, attracting and do you even consider trying to work with influencers to try to increase that that uh, from 10%, say, to 15 or 20% of your business model? To a degree, yes. We do search out some of the food service work, but a lot of it is just people we've met. So a, a great person, for, an exa- for example, would be Dan Hart, a good buddy of mine. He's out of the Chicago area. I, I should actually connect you guys. He's got, I, I don't know how many restaurants, but it's uh, it's more than two. He's got quite a few. And hey, he'll hit me up. He's like, hey, what you got? And last year we sent him a bunch of smaller brisket cuts to use to make braised brisket tacos because he did a special launch or something like that where we've built a network where we can start to move product when we need to, to make room for DTC. Probably the biggest thing we have issues with in the food service space is education on quality because some of these chefs are just so good. They can take very plain cuts of meat and make them phenomenal. So they don't see a value in a better product and rightfully so, right? If they don't need to have a better product to have that wow factor, their business needs to make money too. Exactly. They can just have, save the ROI, save Absolutely. the extra expense. Yeah. A hundred percent. Or you find somebody that wants to do a special or you find somebody's doing a destination or a lot of times the chefs come to us because their customer said, we want this type of beef. We don't care what it costs. And now they're selling an experience. So it, it's very much the sales model of the food service slash chef that determines whether or not we'll be a good fit. Uh, so for all intents and purposes of five or six food service slash chefs that reach out to us, usually one out of 10 will probably end up working. And then it's on more of a sporadic level based on what they have going on. Uh, we have one gentleman that's up in Denver that he hits us up for whole tenderloins and uh, cases of ribeyes when he's doing special meals. And that's all he does. He goes, I can sell your steaks at a premium because it makes sense because they do come off better. I can't make your burger work because I can make burger do kind of whatever I want. Right. Yeah. And that was to your point. So you're putting your dollars and your energy into DTC. So talk to us through your strategies. How are you growing in this marketplace in the DTC model? Uh, you, you said the word just a few minutes ago, it's influencers is a big part of that. So it's strategic partners or strategic partnerships, excuse me, with companies like Element, the electrolyte supplement company. By the way, I noticed that. So when I got my box, there was a, um, I think there were some, I think there was a small box included in that. Mm-hmm. And we, we actually purchase Element. I use it for my cycling. Yeah. And, and so Rob, who uh, is the founder of Element, is a fellow jiu-jitsu practitioner. 
Rob is also a type one diabetic and he created element for the carnivore diet to be effective and work through keto. And, uh, we've been working with them for a few years now and we just like sharing the word of other good companies and, you know, they share our stuff and, uh, we work with other people in certain industries. So back to the keto conversation, we do a ton of work in the keto and carnivore diet community. So Dr. Sean Baker is one of our good friends. He, you know, helps share the message of what we do as, as well as many other ranchers around the country. Uh, because as most people know, terrestrial advertising is pretty much dead, you know, radio, print, et cetera, et cetera. It doesn't have Except for podcasting. No, I'm just it, kidding. There go you ahead. go. <laughs> well, it, it doesn't quite work for us, especially in today's world, because the people that are looking to buy steak to get shipped to their house are usually social media. They're, they're on some other form or they're looking to a carnivore influencer for where to get clean beef. Um, so we have found that, you know, kicking product out to the right people and going on podcasts like this one and just sharing the message grows at a rate that, you know, quite frankly is outstanding. And we work to sustain that level. You know, we're up 50% year over year for the last couple of years. We tripled the year of COVID because people couldn't get beef. So, you know, when you're doubling the company every six to 12 months, it's uh, <laughs> becomes well, its that puts own. a strain. Yes. Yeah. It becomes its own monster. So especially on the D2C side, because our biggest headache in D2C is shipping. FedEx has cost me more money than any bad business decision I've ever made. I know. I mean, how do you get around that? You I mean, you really can't. Nope. You take it and say, thank you, sir. May I have another? <laughs> <laughs> Whip. Whap. Yeah. Yeah. That's well, a tough pill. To, that's a tough pill to swallow when you just see margin going out the window. Well, I will say that the year of FedEx or the year of COVID, our shrink rate with FedEx was about 7%. And that is down under its sub 1% and has been for a while. Um, so, you know, for their credit, they're doing very well. They're doing a lot better. But if you go back and look at their SEC filings of what the company has done and what it's doing now, they're on a totally different level. Probably my biggest personal argument is uh, when COVID happened, and they used to do this around the holidays every year, they suspend their delivery guarantees during the holidays, yeah. basically from Thanksgiving to New Year's Day. And I get it. You have a huge wall of product coming. Sure. The other 11 months, you'll at least own your business. They turned it off during COVID. They have yet to turn it back on. Now that I did not know. Yeah, they, they don't have to. <laughs> so that that is really annoying to me because we've also seen a 50% increase in their total rates in the last two and a half years. Uh, so some of that is just a hard pill to swallow, but... Uh, what are you going to do? UPS, uh, when Amazon said they were going to do a lot of their own fulfillment, they switched everything to UPS. So UPS's system is kind of upside down right now. They can't get fulfillment done. So uh, I was on a- Because what, they're backlogged? Yeah. And they're adding extra drivers, but it's also hard to get people to come to work. And uh, It's just a compounded issue. Oh, yeah, for sure. And it was actually pretty funny. I was talking to the divisional president of FedEx- early 2022. And I said, Hey man, I, I see your sec filings. I know what you guys are making. Come on. Like you're putting all this risk back on your consumer 
on your customer, try to help us out. And he, uh, he said, well, you know, understand that's not profit. We're reinvesting in new infrastructure to make it better. And I laughed and I said, well, welcome to the show, man. We're in small business. We have to reinvest everything. Like, <laughs> I'm sorry that, that FedEx has to reinvest, but all the rest of us do it on the daily. Uh, maybe try not to push it back on us quite so much. Yeah, I just don't see a way around it. There's that, not. That, that, I mean, the, the beauty of DTC is that it's opened you up to a, a marketplace across the country mm-hmm. or the world, arguably. On the beef side, not so much with the world because we can't export uh, those. Oh, small well, I appreciate quantities. you bringing that point up. Yeah, we can't export those small quantities. Like we could ship smaller boxes to Canada um, if we wanted to do the paperwork. We just haven't needed to. Um, but to your point about FedEx and some of that, you know, a lot of our marketing is targeted to certain regions. We're trying to drive more business in areas that are easier for us to ship to. Uh, you know, Phoenix is one of our big markets. Well, we're coming up on on summer. You know, it's the second of May right now. We're turning off all of our marketing in those regions because it starts to get hot. FedEx starts to have failures and we will intentionally pull back marketing in certain regions to give ourselves and FedEx a better chance at success. To reduce spoilage? Yeah, reduce spoilage and reduce time in transit. And customer retention is the biggest thing in direct-to-consumer. You know, once you get them in the system, retaining them is way easier than finding a new customer, right? So we don't want to try to hammer the Phoenix market in July when it's 115 degrees, because even if FedEx delivers it on time and it's that hot in Phoenix and it sits on somebody's porch for five hours, you're smoked. Um, the good news is no pun intended. Yeah. Yeah. You're smoked in not a good way. Not, <laughs> not in an edible way. Yeah. And now the good news is people have trained themselves. They know what's coming in. They know what they need to be in position for. And luckily people in areas like Phoenix know that it's hot. We need to get perishable stuff inside. So Things are all coalescing in a direction that are helping everybody. Um, but if you as a business owner are not watching your own risk parameters and managing those in a way that gives you a better chance at success, you're kind of missing the boat. How much time, energy, and effort do you put into creating your own content for, say, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook for those uh, DTC ads? So luckily, uh, I haven't had to do a lot of that. <laughs> I have a face. I have a face for radio. So <laughs> my wife. This does is why. Like this is why you and I are both hidden behind an audio podcast, right? I'm with there you. There you go. Uh, so my wife does a lot of that. We have a marketing guy that's a retired marine machine gunner that's very, very good at what he does. Uh, we've got some other filming partners that come out and shoot content. Um, the good news is, for the most part, we don't have to pay for a lot of that advertising. So some of it goes on YouTube, some of it goes in partner messaging, but for the most part, just talking about steak and good ranching practices on our social media feed does well, uh, especially when you couple that with good influencers that, you know, understand what you're doing. Well, so you're really not having to pay as much as another company who's really trying to cut through the the marketplace noise. To a degree, um, because, and I mean this respectfully to everybody else in the space, we are a true ranch. We don't have to work to create the vibe of being a ranch when we're a meat company. Um, There's companies that are meat purveyors that try to talk about being ranchers. 
they have to work really hard at it. Uh, we spend all weekend at brandings with the neighbors. The content just kind of comes out of the way we do business and how we live. Um, so we don't have I to see. work that hard to create the transparency and the authenticity that someone that's trying to capture some market segment has to, if that makes see, sense. See, I was missing that. I, I didn't quite, I wasn't quite tracking with why you weren't having to do as much, put as much effort into it, but it's what work you do put into it. The consumer can see that it's genuine and it's authentic and it truly is a ranch. That's what you're saying. Yep. And now it took a long time to cultivate that within our group, within our, our under or our customer base. So they understand what they're getting. And we've went on a ton of podcasts and spent a lot of money traveling. Um, but also the customer and the consumer are becoming exceptionally more knowledgeable. They've, they've ordered from, from people that, you know, may not be operating the way they should. And the type of people that are buying direct to consumer beef that gets shipped to their door, uh, typically are doing the research. They want to know what they're buying. So, when you get known for being that transparent, that authentic with, you know, literally my phone number is on the website. If you got a question, let me know. That just kind of lives on ad infinitum in a way that uh, we don't have to continue to push on quite so hard. Jeff, what would you say are your primary goals for 2023? What do you want to finish up with this year? Well, uh, we've got some cool stuff happening in the background we can't quite talk about yet. Oh, it's just me and you. Right. Yeah, nobody's going to listen. Um, those are actually within probably a month of kind of completing all the paperwork and being able to talk about it. Um, but in general, what we're working on doing right now is putting together a more holistic model with other ranches to take what we're doing, share the message and the mission with other people or share the message and the mission of other people in a way that, you know, rising tides lift all boats. Um, so we're taking what we have been fortunate enough to build and we're going to take that on a rocket ship with some other great partners and uh, really be in able to- In the same space or in, a, in an, an adjacent space? In the same space. We're just going to do more of what we do uh, in the same great way we've been doing it in a way that we can champion the story of other ranches and we can share the story of more agriculture outside of just what we do uh, with some other national partners that are going to help us with some uh, really cool marketing. I see. That kind of goes back to the whole influencer idea. You're going to be in the story with some other really big brands and they're going to see you there as well. Potentially. Um, you know, we're still, we're still dotting T's and, Crossing I got, eyes, you, I got you. So that's, but it's an interesting concept. And I liked how you talked about, you know, working with influencers and talking about the keto market. Um, I've got a referral for you too, genius gourmet. They do a lot with keto. They're, they're big in Costco. Mm, and, nice. um, yeah, that might be a good, a good referral so I can get that to you. So, yeah. Well, I mean, well, Jeff, I think, I think the thing that it comes down to Tony is a lot of the people you've had on your podcast, a lot of the restaurant tours are, people in these more niche, not so much commodity-based food markets, trying to be inclusive with other owners, trying to work together good with chefs, trying to build those relationships is so much more valuable than having a cheap price. 
And man, thanks for what you're doing. Thanks for how you're championing the the idea of food as, you know, not just something to have, but, you know, an idea in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's a it's a labor of love, I'll tell you, because listening to the grind that all of you go through, um, I get to do the easy part. And that's just interview you and have you tell your story so other people can hear what it is. And look, I just want people to go out and sample and give it a try. That's, that's what most brands want. They just want the, they want the sampling. They want to get those consumers in to give it a try and um, anything I can do to help, you know, it's my pleasure. Yeah. Well, and you know, the other thing I always say is, Hey, if you're in Northern Virginia or you're wherever, and you want to know about a local rancher because you don't want to pay to have it shipped, let me know. I mean, I can't feed all of Denver. You know, there's there. Here's a great data point for you. We harvest in this country about six hundred thousand cows a week. Six hundred thousand cows a week. Yes, that is the national harvest average, give or take. So, our ranch doesn't produce one percent of that annually. So, if you start thinking about, man, how are we going to feed all these people? There's people all over the world, all over our country, working on everything from chickpeas to garbanzo beans, which are, you know, the same thing, of course, or beef or chicken or pork. I mean, the amount of work that goes into this stuff is insane because we're harvesting about 2 million pigs a week. And annually, we harvest 2 billion chickens a year in this country. So when we start thinking about the math, uh, as producers or as restaurateurs, you know, the famine mindset of I got to have every customer just doesn't quite work in business at that, at that scale. No, Mm-mm, not at that scale. So 600,000 cows a week on average nationally, 2 million pigs per week. Yep. And 2 billion chickens a year. A year. Yeah. It's a big number. And unfortunately, I don't know the turkey numbers. I'm not a turkey guy. Uh, turkey oh. gets turkey gets its one day a year in November. Other than that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of with you on that. And how about uh, Cornish hens? Uh, actually, if you scroll back in our Instagram feed, totally unrelated. I don't know the Cornish hen number, but it was... Three years ago on Thanksgiving, I cooked like 15 pounds of picanha and sliced it really pretty and put it on this platter. And I cooked one Cornish hen and put it in the middle of the platter as the obligatory bird for Thanksgiving. (laughs) And we got so much love on Instagram for that picture. I was pretty proud of that one. We'll have to go back. Jennifer is going to have to find that one. We'll use it. We'll use it to help uh, help promo this. Jeff is great. I mean, I think we can go on and on about this. It's a great topic. I'm, I'm interested. There's a lot more we can talk about, but I think maybe in a month or so, when you come back and you've got some more news, maybe we'll hop on to a quick live stream. There you go. I'm down with that, man. Appreciate your time, Tony. Thank you. Hey, no, likewise. I know you're, you're busy out there, you and your wife, um, helping to help, helping to feed the world or help feed, uh, feed America at least. Well, and I guess uh, you you didn't talk on on uh, the recording. You know, how did you like the steak? I mean, we sent you the box. You, I, you know what? That is totally um, totally my fault because you, it's funny. You and I were kind of talking offline, so I got a beautiful box. And um, by the way, you what's the um, 
flash freezing process that you use because it was really done quite well. It's it's just in a walk-in freezer. I mean, we just have a sub-zero that that uh, we keep the product spread out in the freezer so it freezes all correctly, and yeah. then we case it. So not really a flash freeze, but well, that's good because I don't even know what that means. Um, I just hear people say that. So I will tell you, um, my wife does the carnivore diet quite you know kind of off and on, and I do love and I do love beef as well, and I've gotten a lot of use out of my grill. And just before I sat down to um, interview with you, I, <clears throat> I grilled a top sirloin. And let me tell you, it cooked, I can't tell how perfectly it cooked. Because I can only get my grill up to about 550. So I put the sear marks on both sides. So I go for about two and a half minutes and then I pick it up and, and move it. And then I flip it and get another, you know, maybe five minutes total, but I have to kind of turn it on both, you know, kind of turn it to get that uh, cross checking. Sure. And then I, then I move it up to the top rack and I let it sit there for about two minutes. So it's getting heat, but not direct. And then I let it sit for five and, you know, off the, you know, off the heat on the inside, on the, on the cutting board and the pictures and the videos that I took of this, if it does not make your mouth water, I made my wife, hold the camera and it was all I could do is to get her to focus <laughs> on what she was filming because I was as I was cutting it you could just see the um the juice and then of course I opened it up and it was perfectly medium and within about 10 minutes um this beautiful steak was gone and there was literally no evidence of it except the cutting board of the remnants so I think what she really you know what she really liked about it was that she likes a um, a ribeye, and of course, there's a lot of marbling, a lot of a lot of fat in that. But the top sirloin really was is a is a close competitor. I feel like to to that cut. There's a lot of people that will prefer sirloin over the ribeye because if you get a good sirloin, in my humble opinion, and I've eaten a lot of steak, a great sirloin has the best beef flavor, hands down. Um. If you get a good one, it's just not as repeatable as the ribeye because sometimes the sirloin does do a little bit of work, which can affect tenderness. I see. Well, and I don't really know where these cuts are coming from on the cow. So we could know, do I an entire to. podcast just on that. Tone. I know we could. And I, I literally had some, I thought, no, I'm not going to get too down into it, but maybe, maybe when we do the live stream, there you go. maybe we can do, uh, we can do that. So. Yeah, that that was my takeaway was that it tasted so good. The flavor was on point. And of course, I only put salt. That's the only thing you need on a good steak. It, that, that's it. And um, you mentioned earlier the the color of the fat. It was bright white. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some of the edges got a little bit crispy, which is kind of what you want. You know, I don't want to go too overboard with that because I like to keep it medium, but yeah, let's just say um, feeling pretty good right now, having having eaten that for for lunch, and I, I really just I wanted to make another one just before our podcast. So thank you for reminding me; it was great, and we'll have all the you should be able to find pictures and videos. I'll have all that in the show notes, so you can kind of take a look at just what how one man uses the grill. There you go. Perfect. Well, thank you for having me today, sir. I appreciate the time. 
Yes, thank you. I appreciate it. And uh, we will see you in about a month or so for this news release. Sure. Let me know. Um, oh, b- oh, before we go, um, what's the best way for people to find you? And uh, what's the website? Yeah, it's everything is uh, Colorado Craft Beef. So all, all the socials are Colorado Craft Beef. And uh, the website is coloradocraftbeef.com. Excellent. Thank you, Jeff. Great talking to you again. And uh, much success to you guys here in 2023. I appreciate it, sir. You as well. Thank you.